The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber. We are in the beautiful city of Amsterdam. It is the morning after the 2018 Sabre Awards and I have with me Weber Shandwick, EMEA CEO, Tim Sutton, Asia I'm Pacific stop you there. Chairman. I'm going to go on all... I, I wanted uh, yeah, to go I'm through... I'm not CEO. Oh, okay. What are you? Really? <laughs> I'm, cha- no, I'm oh. Chairman of Weber Shandwick, EMEA and Asia Pacific. Okay, well this is a it's good start. <laughs> And you're the one that's hung over, not me. <laughs> so, did you have a good time at the Sabre Awards, Tim? I thought it was uh, terrific, really. It was a brilliant venue. Beautiful. It was such a beautiful venue. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think the quality of the work um, was great, as far as one can uh, dive down into it in an awards ceremony. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. the winner, the platinum winner, of course, a Weber Shandwick campaign. Well, that was very, very... Um, thrilling indeed. Did you and think it would win as big as it did? Um, I never expect you know, when something mm. will win or not but what I do think was um, as always when you get a campaign like that it's down to the bravery of the client. Sure. You know so for um, you know it's not as if that client Iceland had any credentials in this area previously it's not yeah. the sort of thing you necessarily expect them to do. So tell our listeners a little bit about the campaign if you don't mind before talking about yeah. how brave well, they were. I think as, as, as we all know, there's been um, a huge raise in awareness around the world about plastics and plastics in the ocean. And perhaps we have to credit Sir David Attenborough and Blue Planet for a, lot, a large part of that, not the only part of it. Mm. And um, concern is one thing, but I think here was uh, at a time when um, people were perhaps feeling a little frustrated um, at the slowness of governments, not mm-hmm. just the British government, governments to kind of come out with, you know, tangible, real measures that made sense. And measures, by the way, within a timescale, not like 2040, you know. Mm. Um, I think yeah. this was an initiative that, um, that that woke people up. And of course, the, the pledge was to, um, was to remove plastics from Iceland's um, packaging mm. by a timely date. And of course, Iceland's only one um, part of the um, the UK uh, retail scene, never mind the global retail scene. It, you know, it can't achieve it on its own. But I think the effect that had, and we we saw that in the sort of follow up announcements from other companies, from competitors, mm. from the way that um, the government then had to um, react pretty quickly with its own revised announcements. Mm. Um, it was just a you know, in, listen, in an age of amazingly clever. Um, digital engagement campaigns. This was a classic kind of you know, PR campaign, right? Yeah. I mean, yes, it, it was hugely magnified using all the ways you'd expect it to be magnified using sure. you know, social media and so on. But, but it, by, by classic, I mean it was, it, was, it, it, was, it was strategic, it was clear, it was cleverly conceived, and it was, um, I say it myself, I think pretty flawlessly executed. So that's why it's nice to see. But why, I wonder, did Iceland decide on this course of action, given that it wasn't really 
a big part of their heritage. Well, I think I think you've got a board there. I don't know, you know, the board members um, mm. individually, but I'm just going by what the team tells me. Um, you've got a board there that's got a genuine focus and commitment. Is it a business opportunity? Yeah, of course. You mm -hmm. know, there's always a you know, this yeah. you know, you don't just do it um no, I mean, you know, without a clear idea of what the positioning for the business yeah. is and competitive advantage you might get, but that that's fine, right? We had Sue Garrard speaking at our conference yes. yesterday and uh, from Unilever S V P and she said, you know, purpose has to drive profit. Yeah. Uh, otherwise it's just yeah, CSR yeah. and then it's Abs just abs abs absolutely gloss. and and why you know, why would you otherwise? But I think it, it demonstrates that as we know this already from other very good examples around the world, that you know um, that acting properly drives profit. Mm. Okay, and not you have to get everything right on that. Okay, it's not just a blanket abstract statement. But if you act properly, and if if you mean by that purpose in a way that consumers and citizens can relate to, understand and, and empathise with, it's going to give you a it's going to give you a dividend. Mm. Now th this doesn't you know solve the whole plastics problem. It doesn't presumably resolve every business challenge Iceland's got, um, yeah. like, like all the um, you know, retailers in the, in the world. It's, it's an challenging environment, but it was just, I think, a piece of uh, clear, strategic, purpose-driven bravery. Mm. So it's interesting, because we see a lot of these types of efforts now from companies in the West, particularly, mm. um, to kind of align their strategy to a broader, purpose that attempts to bring some kind of benefit to society as opposed to just thinking of their business in terms of the bottom line. Now, do you think we are seeing that from, for example, the Chinese brands that are starting to become far more uh, powerful across the world? Well, um, I think two parts to that question, if I may say, Arun. Um, the, the first part is yes, we are we are seeing it from companies around the world. But I do kind of stick back to the idea that that what companies should talk about in purpose terms should still be fundamentally related to kind of what their product and service is about and the yes. impact it has on society. So, you know, the idea that you pluck a purpose uh, because you think, oh, that's a nice purpose to ride with. It's popular. <laughs> let's go with it. Yeah. Um, Mike, you know, I was always brought up. Um, with the idea that you've got our permission to speak, which means why should you, um, why should you, anyone listen to you on this position at all? Why do you have a right to a view on it? So mm. you, you have a right to a view, presumably, because your product or service has these kind of benefits and impacts on society, and therefore the purpose, as it were, coheres around those values and impacts. Mm -hmm. so that, that's the way I was kind of brought up. I, I, I think that's still right. And therefore for those, um, in Iceland being a classic example, you know, why, why plastics? Because it's such a huge fundamental part of their business sure. value chain and distribution chain and so on. So yeah. coming on to um, Chinese brands, um, well, first of all, let's say there are still um, probably a, a relatively small handful um, that um, have real global um, no, not ambitions, that mm -hmm. really have global credentials, okay? yes. and we know yeah. the usual suspect names are mm -hmm. going on. And there may well be more, um, and we can talk about this if you want, as, as, as we go over the next few years and so. I think clearly Chinese uh, brands, um, by virtue of the, their kind of home market, um, are hugely sensitive um, 
to the kind of environment in which they operate. And, and by that I don't just mean the obviously the political environment in which they operate, although of course they are, but to the uh, ideas that underpin Chinese society, such as uh, the idea of harmony, uh, the idea of sort of peaceful change, mm. the idea of ev long-term evolution, mm -hmm. and all of these are very, very sort of you know Chinese concepts. And so they're kind of familiar in a way, aligned with the idea of um, of being harmonious to, if I can put it that way, um, the society they serve and the people who are their customers and their and their citizens. So one could argue, in a way, that they are naturally predispos predisposed. Um, to take that kind of view. Now, having said that, um, most of these um, Chinese companies um, are coming out, out of a situation where they have enormous strength and scale um, due to an absolutely gigantic domestic market. Mm -hmm. Okay, If you take you know, China Mobile, I forget how many billions of subscribers it's got, but it's, it's a sure. lot, right. And, and, in a, in, and of course, in a... Um, by definition, in a state monopoly mm -hmm. kind of position in, in nearly every case, not most cases anyway. And being in that kind of um, environment, of course, you're not um, uh, subject to uh, the forces of competition, you're not challenged directly by, by competitors. Mm. In a sense, your, your consumers and citizens are, are there for you. Yeah. And so for these companies to... Um, um, as, as, a, as some of them have been doing, to then go uh, into global markets, well, first of all, into Asian markets, but then global markets, in vastly different cultures, environments, socioeconomic conditions, is still challenging, I think, for mm. them. Um, which is why some of them um, kind of look uh, to the example of what Japanese companies have done, what mm -hmm. Korean companies have done, because they've probably been at it for another... Japanese companies 25, 30 years or more and have learned you know, lessons along the way. And I think um, when I've spoken to Chinese companies, you know, that model, those models are kind of interesting, different mm. but interesting. So I still think they're on um, quite a substantial learning curve. But who's, you know, nothing to be surprised at that. Look at the, the learning curve that Western multinationals have had to have and still have, by the way, as you know, yeah. in, in, in Asia and in, in China. So I think that's their challenge. But as always, they are extremely quick learners yeah. and, and quick adapters. So there's no reason to believe that they're not going to get there at some stage. But um, it didn't take Japanese brands this long to figure it out. And it hasn't taken Korean brands this long to figure it out. I just wonder, there seems to be something more structural at play here rather than just the passage of time and how long it will take Chinese brands to learn um, what's required of them from a global perspective. Well, um, yes and no again. I think, you know, you say uh, didn't take Japanese companies this long. There have been some egregious examples in the last two or three years of Japanese companies still learning how to operate in, the, in, right. in say, the United States with various you know, crises and, and, and so on. So that, that, that's one point. And yes, you're absolutely right. They have um, developed all the um, sophistication of, of global marketing. Mm. Um, if I, I mean, they've built global but the, brands. But yes, they have. Um, but necessity is the mother of invention. Japanese right. companies had to do it. There isn't right. this huge domestic market there's a you know a substantial mm. market right in Japan but they had to and Korea even more so they had to become global um, in order to in, in survive you know Japan ultimately uh, is a trading nation mm. and I think for um, 
Chinese companies, there has not been the same imperative because mm. there's huge domestic global market and the particular conditions of that market. Yeah. Uh, which is not to say that, um, you know, as they look now, particularly in a, in a Chinese market, which um, while according to a f you know official um, GDP numbers is still growing healthily, nonetheless, as we know, um, has slowed down mm -hmm. notably over the last year or two, and and maybe there's a new normal there, mm -hmm. and so for for those companies, the um, ability to uh, the need to reach out into the world is important. You can get a sense of that. Um, from the huge attention focused on the trade disputes, mm -hmm. you know, which is going on at the moment between the US and China, whether, you know, there are sort of more friendly noises in the last week or so, but let's see what kind of resolution that is. But it matters hugely to, um, to China, just as, of course, it matters to the United States, but it matters hugely to China to be able to have access to markets and to be able to drive this far more export-led growth. And you've also got a country which is increasingly focused on um, consumer um, spending consumer products and services rather than the huge infrastructure-driven investment of the past, and therefore, mm -hmm. again, focusing on consumer products and services globally is is important to them. Um, so, at the moment, you know, there aren't that many. Um, there's maybe a dozen or so companies that would, you know, are actually operating globally and have some some brand recognition globally mm. uh, to varying degrees, but. Um, I expect that there will be more, and yes, they will go through their own learning curve. Is the advice that public relations firms, many of whom have, have you know, set up these practices to help Chinese brands go global, I think it was, it was very fashionable around three or four years ago, and you know, now everyone has Huawei as a client, uh. and um, many work for Alibaba, and, and mm. you know, perhaps a, a few others, still only a handful. But I just wonder, is the advice that um, p global public relations firms providing Chinese companies, is it falling on deaf ears? Is it the wrong kind of advice? Is there something that public relations consultants themselves could be doing differently to improve this or help this situation? Well, one of the things I think has um, been changing, Arun, is that the, the model until, I don't know, four or five years ago um, was very much based on the fact that here are Western globalized companies coming to teach Chinese and Asian businesses and markets about PR, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. on, on the basis that, um, on the basis that, look, you know, New York and London and the other Western centers were the repository of all depth of knowledge about um, communication, strategy, creativity, um, and that we were going to, um, you know, go to Asia and kind of evangelize those messages so that um, this developing, emerging region could kind of join the global family and so on. Mm. And that was reflected um, in, as you know, the huge sort of expat diaspora, of which I was part for eight years mm. into Asia to, to do that job. And to be fair, there was a little bit of, um, um, perhaps more than a little bit of sort of rationale to that, in that obviously the sophistication of, of techniques learned in, in London, New York, and many other Western places over many decades did have relevance, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, for, so if you go through the 80s and 90s and so on. And of course there was a, an upskilling up of, you know, of, of uh, understanding I in Asia, which sort of brought it closer to that level, okay? So 
but fine. I think things have changed. Mm. So, you know, one of the I think most interesting phenomena of the recent years is is what the West can now learn from Asia and China. Yeah. And I say that as someone who you know has spent most of my career in Europe, but eight years um, in Asia, not until not very long ago. And one of the things that you know I've kind of seen is that if the expectation was for the Asian PR market to become another, you know, fast growing, of course, but the sort of smaller Me Too version of the Western PR market. Right. I don't right. think that's sustainable. No, um, and it hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened, right? Yeah. So at, at a number of different levels, it's it's not it's not just the fact that. Um, um, Thankfully, we now, you know, have um, a properly Asian domiciled rooted businesses, right? Mm. The PR firms in the main, uh, with you know most of the CEOs and leaders being authentic to their region. That's great, mm. and it's not just that. Um, as we all know, there's a huge explosion of you know creativity and creative content. And by the way, not just China, but India and Indonesia, and Malaysia and Vietnam and all the rest of it. Okay, yeah, that's true as well. That's mm -hmm. great. So we don't have to go to London, New York for ideas and strategy. It's to me, it's more fundamental than that. If you particularly take China as the, I suppose the prime example of here, and you start looking at how. Um, Content commerce works right. in China, or if you want, to, if you want to say more broadly, content conversion. Right. You see a market with really um, very, very different aspects. Mm -hmm. So, um, t you know, if you take, for example, that um, if uh, Chinese online payments mm -hmm. um, are some phenomenal figure, I, I want to say ten trillion, but forgive me if I'm I wrong. But it is it something is like something that. Like right? that yeah. I saw a chart recently. In fact, I used yeah. a chart recently where. Uh, whatever that figure is, let's assume it's ten trillion. Forgive me if I if the number's not quite right, and you have it as a line on a bar. U.S. online payments barely hit the chart, yeah. right? They're, they're just there, yeah. <laughs> and, and European likewise. And and we all know that's based on um, some very remarkable homegrown platforms. Yeah, WeChat, notably WeChat, which I think yeah. has one billion. Um, one billion users. The numbers in China are just wonderful, aren't they? Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> And when you look at how that, that work, WeChat works and how communications has become completely kind of integrated with um, social media right through to purchase. So if you take WeChat, it's kind of a wonderful amalgam of, you know, Google, Facebook, um, um, PayPal, yeah. <laughs> all, all rolled into one. Amazon. You know, Amazon, thank yeah. you. Yeah. It all, all kind of rolled into one, and it has, and, and the way that actually, that the way that sort of ecosystem works is quite incredible. Mm. And so the kinds of program, um, you know, we're doing in China, we see others doing in China as well, are are fundamentally quite different. Well, people might say, okay, that's China, and it's got its own, you know, that's just, that's just, that's the way it works, and, mm. and and it's you know, it's not going to happen in the West. Well, it's already happening in the West, right? Okay, yeah. it will. It, we know that from the sort of work we're doing in Europe, from the work we're doing in, in North America, it will take its own different forms, of course, because the platforms are are um, are, are different. But but that idea of um, being able to use communications and PR um, to fundamentally uh, drive either sales or conversion, whatever the, the thing being converted is, right? It doesn't have to mm -hmm. be money. No. Um, no. We know that's happening already, and we we kind of talk about it, but we've had the 
from our own business, we've had the great fortune to have a one billion person beta trial, right? Mm. <laughs> of, how, of how that kind of works, beta, beta for the purposes of the West, it was alpha, yeah. alpha in China. And, yeah. and the lessons of that, um, which are, you know, we're now using in the West. So take all of that together and you look at Asia and you say, well, Asia's, you know, grown amazingly well, PR market now, it's grown amazingly well. It's, um, I'm guesstimating, I think you, uh, the home support has a number of something like 15.6 billion. You, We for estimate for the global, global industry. agency market. And, yeah. I, and I don't know, but I tried to work out roughly. I, I, I suspect Asia Pack is something like 2.4, okay? Which sounds, firstly, oh, well, percentage-wise, that's not that great. What's the big mm. deal about Asia, right? Yeah. Okay. Albeit, it's, um, it's grown very hugely in the last 10 years. So something, I don't know, most global PR firm revenues, maybe 15, 17% of their global revenue, could be a bit more in some cases. Uh, for instance, maybe Ogilvy, don't know. Um, yeah, but something I like think that, it's about right. right. Yeah. And, and okay, in, when I first went to Asia in 2007, based on the num best numbers again, it was probably about eight or 9%, so that's right. been the level of rise. Mm -hmm. But people just say, okay, still only about 15, 17%, what's the big deal about Asia? But the big deal about Asia to me now is there's not so much you know, what's happening in Asia itself, interesting though that is, but the way the model is beginning to export. And mm. I, I um, um, used a little sort of metaphor for this not long ago, I was a good fortune to be invited by uh, the host of the World PR Forum in Oslo. Mm. And so I, I, I came up with the formula, of this is retreading the steps of Marco Polo, right? Mm. So in, in 1271, yeah. as I'm sure you knew her in, yeah. Marco, <laughs> Marco Polo left, left Venice um, for a little business trip, it took them a few years, mm -hmm. as they did back then, and and of course the whole journey was from from west to east, and and now we're seeing the re return journey. I mean, just take the phenomenal Silk Road mm -hmm. proposal, yeah, <laughs> Belt and Road, yeah. <laughs> Belt. Yeah. I mean, that that is just in its um, in its sheer scale is pretty mind blowing. If I remember the numbers right, something like it covers, I think, in theory, on paper, sixty eight countries, mm -hmm. um, some 60% of the world's population, anything from 35% to 40% um, of GDP, mm -hmm. world's GDP, at an investment cost of, don't you love, love this range of estimates, four to eight trillion dollars, you know, so <laughs> somewhere in there, somewhere in there is the number, right, four right. to eight trillion, you know, a little, little bit, a bit of margin of error. Anyway. Um, if you take all of that, there is, uh, you know, there are people who are um, in the West who are skeptical about this, of course. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who will simply say, well, this is part of China's, you know, geopolitical plot for the world and, mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. And, and who knows, um, all of that may or may not be true. But mm -hmm. there's something rather um, startlingly refreshing and awe-inspiring about a vision which is looking outwards to the world like this, mm -hmm. in my eyes. So we all know, and we don't have to mention particular companies or particular politicians, um, but we all know there's been a huge rise of introversion um, in the world. Yes. Um, whether it, it relates to, you know, keep your trade out, keep keep people out, um, um, you know, what's best for this country is best, what's best for that country is best. Brexit. Uh, you know, B word, we, <laughs> we, we have to mention the B word. Um, and things like 
the B word, yeah. um, and of course the, the developments in North America. So anyway, the, there have been uh, in many other countries as well, whether it's in you know Hungary or whatever it, wherever it is. There's been a um, you know maybe for very good reasons, um, but there's been a rise of um, protectionism, a rise of us rather than them, mm-hmm. um, and, and a lot of related phenomena. Okay, and then in the face of all that, here's a vision. Right, however, whatever motivated by China, okay. But here's a vision which is like, wow, here's a plan to link up, you know, sixty-eight odd countries in a four to eight trillion dollar investment, um, encompassing trade, just just anything you can imagine. It, it's so huge, so massive, and so globally visionary in its thinking that. You know, whether you, it's just, I just think it's very impressive. Mm. <laughs> um, what, however it's actually implemented and, uh, and so on, is, you know, here is, here is an idea of the world as a connected place. And we've kind of, uh, we, we had that idea, didn't we, until <laughs> relatively recently, but it seems to have declined. So there's some, there is something impressive about this, even if it's with China's greater might and glory. Um, there's something impressive about the internationalism of it and mm-hmm. the ambition of it and the vision of it. And I, this is something which, um, not just in China, you know, is, is to me the most hugely impressive thing about Asia generally, mm. um, is that you have, in, you know, in Asia, with the notable exception of, you know, North Korea for the moment, but you, you have, generally speaking, even though there are still... Um, major problems in Asia, including uh, poverty um, in, in large parts of the region, all the challenges of urbanization, inequality, and so on. So all those issues are still there. But nonetheless, mm. you have in Asia a kind of um, amazing faith in the enabling power of governments, mm-hmm. the enabling power of, their, of, of capital that they can use, the faith and vision in infrastructure. I mean, you know, who, having been to, um, you know, the airports in Hong Kong or Changi in Singapore or KL or Beijing, can happily go back to their home airports in the West. Yeah. <laughs> With one or two exceptions, you know, they are they are amazing, and and it kind of, uh, as someone who loves his history, it kind of reminds me, being an Englishman, of the kind of spirit of confidence. Um, in and civic pride in Victorian England, you know, oh, like in, okay. it's Brunel, it's Manchester, it's Birmingham, or you know, it's and, post-war America. Oh, it's well. post-war America, another yeah. great example. Um, so in Asia, you have this, um, you have a confidence. And I don't think the confidence is kind of misplaced in the sense that here are um, countries which sense their um, growing global power over the long term. You know, the long-term tectonic plates are shifting and take decisions, not all of them of course right, mm-hmm. um, but take decisions nonetheless designed to um, uplift the life of their citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is something hugely, um, again, awe-inspiring and, and impressive um, about that, I think. Mm. So I know you've got a plane to catch, but I wanted to ask you one thing before we finish. Um, we've talked a lot about the way that Asia is leading the world in, in certain respects. You talked about the, the rise of, of um, these e-commerce platforms, for example. Um, when you look at it at the ground level, in terms of, of agencies, do you worry that there's a risk of agencies 
being left behind by these shifts. Because what I've seen since going back to Asia, and, and mm. I, I have to say I've only been back for less than a year, I see the traditional model in Asia can't really adapt to this, these kinds of, of um, kind of rapid shifts, which doesn't mean agencies themselves can't evolve. Um, but we're seeing new types of agencies emerge, especially in China. So agencies focus specifically on influencer marketing, on e-commerce. Um, we're seeing the platforms themselves aggressively going to clients. It actually made me think for the first time yesterday, I wonder, I can almost see a post-PR agency future in Asia. Well, um, I think, um, as we all know, it, we're in a hugely fast-moving, challenging environment globally, mm -hmm. not just in Asia, um, for PR. Uh, and by the way, maximum challenge, maximum opportunity um, okay. at, at, at the same time. And the truth of the matter is that the the industry and the um, system in which the industry uh, operates is uh, the transformation is just incredibly rapid and it's incredibly constant. Um, and if the point is that that does that raise almost um, constant challenge? Yeah, absolutely. An, I mean, an it's, existential challenge. Uh, um, existential challenge. I don't know. Um, but let's let's use a let's move from existentialism to Trotskyism, and let's say we're in a state of permanent revolution um, at, at, at the moment, and, and and we're living that, as I'm sure our competitors are every day and, and every week in terms of trying to understand how um, how the environment is changing. And it may be, of course, that um, inevitably when that happens, some get uh, left behind, some catch the wave mm -hmm. um, and move on to, to the next um, sort of opportunity. You know, having said that, it, it is challenging, but also the opportunities are just incredible. I mean, mm -hmm. I've never known a time when the opportunities for PR yeah. in some ways aren't, aren't, aren't uh, better than today. And. Uh, we know that when we do get it right, um, um, we the kind of work we can do, um, the kind of um, proof points we can provide to clients, the revenues and profits that flow from that as well, are as good if not better than they've ever been. Mm. Um, so if, if the question is, is there some existential crisis for PR? Uh, I'm not sure there is now more than there's ever have been, and I don't want to bore you of history, but there have been various existential crisis points for PR right along, right along with the journey I've known for the last 30 years. And, and is this another huge challenge, and is it more relentless, is it more rapid? Yes. But this challenge isn't just for PR, right? I mean, the challenge is for everyone in the marketing services environment, whether mm. you're an advertising agency, a media agency, a boutique digital agency, or, by the way, um, these wonderful management consultancies that mm -hmm. everyone talks about uh, are also finding this a challenging environment for all sorts of reasons as well. So yes, it's challenging, but um, I have a lot of um, kind of confidence in you know the kind of smartness of people, not just in Weber Shamwet, but in our better competitors as well, mm -hmm. uh, of whom there are a handful of. Um, and and um, I have confidence in the smartness of these people to to constantly adapt and change. But I'm pretty confident now that you know the model we'll be looking at in 12 months will show substantial differences to the model we're trying to work to today. And and that is you know, part of the fun of life at the moment. Mm. Okay. Well, Tim, thank you very much. 
despite um, a long day yesterday uh, and I suspect a long, a long night, evening, yeah, you, you are as eloquent uh, and insightful as ever. So um, we'll look forward to having you back on the Echo Chamber in the not too distant future. Um, have a good day. Have a good week. It's I'll see you soon. Kind of you to have me again, Arun. Thank you. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.